Okay. All right. Well, it's good to be with all of you here. I know we'll probably have more coming as we go, but we'll get started. We got a lot of material to cover. In fact, I may not be able to finish all of it uh, this week. We'll continue on next week if we don't. Let me begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord, for being a God of justice, but also a God of mercy, a God who hears the cries of his people and answers prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to your throne of grace in our time of need and find help. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the cries of the saints being answered, that that would reinvigorate us today to be people on our knees and people of prayer. I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us think well upon your biblical text, that we would see these things clearly, and that we would set our eyes on your promises and the kingdom to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see, we're in Revelation chapter 8, so we're making a brand new start in a sense because we're getting into an area where God's wrath is going to intensify in the great tribulation. Now, notice I said that God's wrath is intensifying. I did not say that God's wrath is just beginning. And so I spent copious amounts of time proving that the wrath of God is present from the very beginning of Daniel's 70th week. At the very inception of that seven-year timetable, we know that God's wrath is present. So now we see an intensification of that wrath. And so I want to show you how this section lays out and where we are. Periodically, I'll keep doing this because if you think about it, the majority of the book of Revelation is covering Daniel's 70th week. In fact, I would say from chapter 6 all the way at least to the first half of chapter 19, you are within the 70th week of Daniel. Now, here I want to show you where we are. We could come out of Revelation chapter 6, where we had the first six seals, and we talked about that as being the beginning of birth pangs. And let me just pull up a little laser pointer that I have. So the beginning of birth pangs, I'm claiming, began right here at the beginning of the 70th week. And they extend through the six seals, probably to the midpoint, somewhere around there. And then what we had in chapter 7 is we had an interlude. And in that interlude, remember there was that question that the unregenerate asked. They said, hey, the wrath of God has come. This is Revelation 6.17. And who can stand? And that question, who can stand then, was answered in Revelation chapter 7. There were two groups of people, all servants of God, all believers in the promises of God, all believers in Jesus Christ. There were the saints who were being martyred, but there were also the 144,000. They could stand. And so those are the people who are brought to faith during the 70th week. Well, now that interlude is over. And so what we're coming to now is the seventh seal. And so when we come to a seven, it's going to branch open then to the next judgments, the trumpet judgments. And so now we know that the great tribulation is in fact beginning. So we're probably around the midpoint, and we will be moving then throughout the book of Revelation all the way to the end of Daniel's 70th week by the time we get to Revelation 19. Does that make sense? Now, every now and then you're going to have interludes. For example, in Revelation chapter 12, it'll talk about things before the 70th week. So you'll have interludes, but primarily you'll see a flow from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 19 that's covering this last three-and-a-half-year window. Okay, so that's where we are. If I was going to say, where are we in the scheme of things, where my laser pointer is, we're probably at the midpoint, where we're now leaving the birth pangs and going into great tribulation. Okay, so with that, let me open up then the seventh seal with you. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 2, it says, When the Lamb, now who broke it? The Lamb did, right? He broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And he says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So again, notice in the beginning here that Jesus, the lamb, is the one who broke open the seal. And that's important because we have to remember that all of the wrath proceeds from whom? It proceeds from the, the lamb. It proceeds from Christ. The seven seals, remember, open up to the trumpets, which open up to the bowls. All of it's coming from him who's seated on the throne. So this is all his wrath. We have to remember that. Now, notice here what I have on the underline. It says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And what's interesting is this seems to throw different commentators in a tizzy about what does it mean to have a, a silence, a period of silence for a half an hour. And realize when we're studying the book of Revelation, there's some unique things about interpreting it because 
We're reading about someone who wrote something in the past, John, who wrote this around 95 AD, and he's writing about something that's in the future, and we're reading it now. So you see all the different interplay with different time periods that you have to wrestle with. So let me give you the five different interpretations as to what does it mean to have a half hour of silence. Well, some have believed that this silence refers to the silence before the Sabbath rest that occurs during the Millennial Kingdom or just prior to the Millennial Kingdom. The problem with that view, in my opinion, is, of course, the scene here is not on earth, but it's in heaven. And what's more, we're not around the Millennial Kingdom passage that's in Revelation chapter 20. So I think that we should jettison that view. The second is some believe that this is not a literal cessation of sound or literal silence, but it's just simply a cessation of judgment. The problem with that view is, no, what John wants us to see is that Revelation, in the book of Revelation, from chapter 6 all the way to 22, you have a continuation of God's judgment, at least to chapter 20, I should say. Okay, so I don't think we should have that view as the correct view. The third view is that this is a temporary suspension of revelation that was given to John. Now, would that be true in light of the fact that we're still getting revelation? (laughs) I don't think so. I think that that's a swing and a miss. The other take is that some believe that this is a reference to the half hour that it would take priests to perform the offering of incense. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. The problem with that is Leviticus 16 doesn't say how much time it took. That's merely an inference. Okay? So to me, the best view is that this is a dramatic pause. It is a pause that's designed to make the reader gasp, to say, wow, this wrath is going to be greatly intensified. God is coming out of his hiding place to judge his enemies. In fact, we're reminded of a text back in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. You don't have to turn to it, but maybe just jot that down. Again, Zechariah 2, 13 Listen to what the Lord said. Zechariah said, Be silent, all flesh, before Yahweh, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And so there's a collective gasp that should come upon humanity when God's about to come out of his habitation to bring wrath. Now, again, wrath has already begun in the seal judgments, but there's a great intensification here. Now, the other thing we have to wrestle with is notice in verse 2, It talks about these seven angels who stand before God. And a lot of ink has been spilled on who are these angels. Who are they? First of all, I want to point out that the seven angels, notice it says that they stand before God. Well, the verb there is a perfect active indicative of histemi. And the perfect tense is one of the most significant tenses in the New Testament Greek language. It typically has to do with an action that's completed in the past, But the focus is on the lasting effects or the continuing relevance in the present day. In fact, the great scholar in the book of Revelation, Robert Thomas, he says it indicates this perfect tense verb that they stand. It, quote, indicates that they were, these angels, in position before God and had been there for some time as a special class of angel. Now, he doesn't specify what special class of angel it is, but many commentators think that perhaps these are the archangels that are standing before God. Now, before we poo-poo that idea so quickly, because I thought, well, that seems kind of absurd. Where are they reading that into? Well, there's some interesting materials outside of the Bible. One is in a book called First Enoch. Now, to be fair, First Enoch is not scripture. Therefore, we should be very careful. We don't know if it's legitimate or not. But in First Enoch, it talks about seven angels who are the archangels. And here are the names of them. There's Uriel, Raphael, Raquel, Mich- uh, sorry, I was going to say Mich- Michael, Seraquel, Gabriel, and Ramiel. Now, notice at the end of each angel, there's the L ending. Does everyone hear that? Michael, Gabriel, etc. Well, of course, they're a messenger of God, Elohim, right? So... Whoever these are, they're, they're messengers of God. But the reason I think that First Enoch perhaps is onto something is because the Bible does corroborate at least two of those that were listed are, in fact, archangels. Michael, for sure, and also more than likely Gabriel. In fact, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 19. Let me show you a reference. It's very interesting. When Gabriel, remember, he's giving revelation to Zacharias. 
about the coming of his son, John the Baptist? Luke 119. Notice here in Luke 119, it says, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So Gabriel's contention, and this is from Scripture, he is the one who stands in the presence of God. He's one of those angels. What's interesting is the term there, the verb stands, is again a perfect act of participle, a paraistomy. It's a form of istomy. So there's even a connection, I think, grammatically back uh, to here to Revelation chapter 8, verse 2. Okay, so again, that would seem to give an indication that these archangels like Gabriel are unique. They stand somehow in the presence of God to do his bidding in some way. Um, there's further evidence. Uh, turn your Bibles back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. I want to show you Michael. Michael is also, also regarded as an archangel. And there's obviously something unique about them. They must have be of higher rank, I think we could assume. By the way, as you're turning again to Daniel chapter 10, we'll start at verse 13. But as you're turning there, let me just remind you of this paradigm uh, Bob and I would like you to see. In fact, Bob's going to get into great detail when he gets into Acts uh, chapter 7 with Stephen. And we're going to talk about the host of heaven. But remember when we had talked about Deuteronomy chapter 32? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 through 10, God had given the nations over to the demonic realm. The inheritance of the nations, or I should say the inheritance of the demonic realm, were the nations. But Yahweh took one nation to be his own. And what nation was that? It's Israel. Israel is uniquely his inheritance. So the idea in Scripture is like even in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not with what? Flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, and authorities, right? It's with the angelic realm. And so what's conceived then in Scripture is that all of the nations are governed by these angelic beings, these demonic beings. And there's one nation that uniquely belongs to Yahweh. So he governs his, his world, God does, and the nations by using these angelic beings. Uh, we would call them the host of heaven. You can call them the stoichia. There's all sorts of different terms. Now, notice here in Daniel 10, 13, there's credence to this. Here's Gabriel. He says to Daniel, he says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me, with, withstanding me for 21 days. So let's stop there. Here Daniel had been praying, and Gabriel is saying, look, I would have responded earlier. I, get, I think that's the implication. But I was being withstood by whom? By the prince of Persia. Well, now, is this a physical man who was withstanding Gabriel the angel? Well, of course not. He's talking about another angel. This is, this is fighting within the angelic realm. This is spiritual warfare. So, lo and behold, who comes? In fact, he says, then behold. Notice in verse 13, he says, Michael, one of the chief princes, and by the way, he's called an archangel in Jude 9, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, continuing down in verse 21, he says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces. These are the forces against Israel, except Michael, your prince. So again, Michael would be an archangel. So perhaps the seven angels that are standing before God are one of these archangels. By the way, skip also to Daniel chapter 12. I want you to see that these archangels, at least Michael, has a job in protecting Israel against being annihilated by Satan's forces. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. I'll show you the connection to Revelation here in just a moment. Daniel 12.1, notice it says, now at that time. Now that time is at the end or basically the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. It's at the end times, right? We're in the 70th week of Daniel. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued. So the time period that's being discussed there in Daniel 12 is that great tribulation. It's that last three and a half year window. And sure enough, we see the same thing referred to in Revelation chapter 12. Turn your Bibles forward. Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see that Michael does indeed go to battle 
against these other angelic forces on behalf of Israel. Again, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Now, one of the thoughts some people have had is that, remember it talks about the restrainer being removed in 2 Thessalonians? Some have thought, well, maybe the restrainer is, in fact, Michael the archangel. I wrote a paper refuting that idea because what's interesting is you see, instead of Michael standing away and allowing the people of Israel to be attacked during the Great Tribulation, he actually stands to fight for them. And so what I want you to see is that there's this great battle in the angelic realm. There really are these demons and these angels that are battling. And God, of course, will have victory. So there's protection for God's people. And here, when we look at the seven angels who stand before God, they are charged now with pouring wrath that proceeds right from the throne. So whoever these angels are, I can't tell you for sure that they are the archangels or not, but there's similar language that's used, at least with Gabriel, but I think with Michael, the idea of standing. But what I can say is this, that God uses tools or means to dispense his wrath. So whether the wrath comes from the nations, as we see in the first six seals, or it's the angels or it's the creation itself, the cosmos, all of it is being used by God for the purposes of bringing about his rule and his kingdom. That we can certainly be clear on. So again, I would say that there's a, there's a possibility that these seven angels perhaps are uh, the archangels. We can't be sure. Okay, now, one thing I want to point out as well is notice there were seven trumpets that were given to them. Now, the trumpets in the Old Testament are important. They're used on many, many, many numerous occasions that were significant. They were used in ceremonies, according to 1 Chronicles 15.24. They're used to sound the alarm for war, according to Numbers chapter 10, verse 9. They're used for special feasts in Numbers 10.10. But here, and they were often used this way in the Old Testament, like in Joel 2 and Zephaniah 1, they were often used as precursors to divine judgment. And so here again, we've already had divine judgment come, but there's an intensification of it. And that's what the Great Tribulation is about. It is the worst time period that will ever befall humanity. In fact, we'll look at a quote in a couple of slides. Remember from Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, this is the worst time period ever. If this time period had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. Well, remember, you can't have two worsts, right? You can't have the worstest. So if you only can have one worst time period ever, and you're reading about something that sounds like, man, this is the worst I've ever heard. I mean, when do you have a third of the grass and the trees and everything burn up? That's as bad as it gets. Or how about the sea turning to blood? Anyone seen that? Has that ever happened in history? The world's oceans turn to blood where you lose marine life? Well, no. Well, that's the worst time period ever. Well, Jesus is describing the worst time period ever. And guess what? In Matthew 24, he says, that's the great tribulation. Hence, you know, you're in the great tribulation. Why do I belabor that point? Because there's many who interpret the book of Revelation as things that occur during church history. As if this happened in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, etc. Well, no, they can't be happening then because this is the worst time period ever. Okay, so again, this precursor with these trumpets blown has to do with the increase in God's wrath. Okay, now here's schematically what I want you to see. Remember, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, and then you have, what, seven bowls. So you have the six seals, and all of a sudden we came to the seventh one now, and every time you come to a seventh, it opens up to the next judgments. So the seventh seal is opening up to the trumpet judgments. And then you come to the seventh trumpet, and that will open up to what? The seven bowls. And then what's very interesting is when you get to the seventh bowl, it kind of leaves you hanging. It leaves it open-ended because it points forward to the wrath of God that will be poured out in the lake of fire. And how long does that wrath last? It's forever. It's everlasting. 
So in a sense, the seventh bowl is never resolved. And I think it's deliberately done that way by John as he's writing, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, of course, where are we? Well, we're, we're right here. We're at the seventh seal. So that's opening up now to the trumpet judgments. Does everyone see that? So that's what we're going to turn to now. We're going to look at the trumpet judgments here in just a bit. Okay, now I want to turn to verses 3 through 4 where we see that God hears the prayers of the saints. It says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that, here's a purpose statement, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, some claim that the angels here, notice it says another angel. Some would claim that this angel is one of the 24 elders back in Revelation 5.8. And before we poo-poo that idea, notice the similarities. Notice what I have bolded. You have another angel in Revelation 8.3. You have the 24 elders back in Revelation 5.8. But notice in Revelation 8.3, you also have a re- reference to incense. You have the same reference to the bowls of incense in Revelation 5.8. Notice in blue... The prayers of all the saints, they're similar between both passages. However, before we say, look, this angel must clearly be one of the 24 elders, if that were the case, don't we think that John would have just said one of the 24 elders? Okay, I think he would have. Second, notice there's some differences. First of all, notice in Revelation 8.3, it says much incense was given to him, to this angel, well, down below in Revelation 5.8, they have the incense. It's not being given to them. They have it. Are you with me? All right. Now, notice there's another difference between the two texts. Notice up in Revelation 8.3, the incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints. Well, notice down in Revelation 5.8, let me read the text. It says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So up above, they're adding it to the prayers. Down below, they are the prayers. And so to me, a better way of thinking about this is that the 24 elders are the ones who are seen as holding the prayers of the saints. And whoever this angel is described in Revelation 8.3, his job then is to dispense uh, these prayers And they're going to be answered at a specific time by God. And so what I want you to think about is we saw back in Revelation 6 some prayers that seemed to go unanswered. Well, they were answered by God. So there's three answers that God can give in prayer. He can say yes immediately. He can say no immediately. Or he can say wait. And what we saw was that the answer was wait. It was answered in the affirmative But the answer was wait. And I want you to see why that is. Turn your Bibles back to Revelation 6. I want you to see where the initial prayers of the saints were going up. And now they're finally going to be answered to the affirmative. That yes, God will in fact judge on their behalf. Again, Revelation 6 verses 9 through 10. So this is the fifth seal. And this is where the martyrs are crying out. So let's just review real quick. Remember when we're in the fifth seal, the fifth seal is not wrath upon believers. But rather, God is using the imprecatory prayers of the martyrs for the purpose of storing up wrath for the unbeliever. So he's going to be using those prayers against the unregenerate that he's going to be judging. Revelation 6, 9 through 10, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now stop there. What's that phrase, those who dwell on the earth? It's only unbelievers. That's right. It's used, what was it? I think we discovered five times in the book of Revelation. Every single time, no exception, it always refers to the unregenerate, to unbelievers. So the prayer is, how long, O Lord, are you going to, Take until you avenge our blood on the unbelievers of the earth. And now here comes the answer. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Now here's the timing indicator. Until. 
Everyone see the until? That's a timing indicator. So God didn't say no. He said yes, but wait, right? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So what you're going to see now is in the Great Tribulation, there's an intensification of this wrath so that it only lasts three and a half years. Okay, and so God is starting to work now to pour out the wrath on these unbelievers who are persecuting those who were believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's how I think we should see it. Okay, now, with that, let's talk about our prayers and God's timing. I want to review a little bit of something that we didn't spend a lot of time on, and that's in Revelation 6. Talking about these prayers, that's the passage I just read to you. Notice the answer that God gave when the martyrs were praying. It was they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Notice the term completed, everyone, that's in red. Does everyone see that? Well, the term completed comes from plerao, and it literally means to be filled up. And so the idea then is that there's going to be a filling up of the complete misery of God's people, and then God can't stands no more. Right? Wasn't that Popeye? Didn't he, wasn't he the one I can't stands no more, right? Well, God gets to that point. There's a filling up of just so much that he can take, and then he's going to intervene. And I want you to see that this idea of filling up is a very biblical concept. There's a filling up of God's wrath. There's also a filling up of those who repent and come to Christ. In fact, um, let me see if I can find that. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. I want to start on the positive side of things before I get to the negative here. Again, Acts chapter 3, I'll have to find it myself, the exact reference. Yeah, verse, start in verse 19. Here's the uh, second sermon by Peter. Uh, is there everyone in Acts 3.19? Notice here, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he might send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In verse 21, it says, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. But notice this idea, verse 19, repent therefore and turn again. Now notice the that. Some of your versions will have so that. Here's the purpose. Why should you repent? Well, that you're, so that your sins would be blotted out and that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, that has to do with the second coming. So what Peter's saying is you repent so that God will send Jesus. And so that creates a conundrum because we say, well, wait, has God not fixed by his sovereign authority the very day that Christ will come? Oh, yes, he has. But what's very interesting, as people repent and come to Jesus Christ, there's a filling up of the full number of God's elect, and he knows when that occurs. But as we repent by obeying the gospel, it's something to be obeyed, according to 1 Thessalonians 1. We're filling up that full number of the elect, and God knows when it will occur on what day, and he sends his son. In the same way, there's a filling up of wrath. There's a filling up of evil. And once it's filled, God can't stand no more, and he comes and he judges. Okay, so let me show you an example of this. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. I want to show you that this is an Old Testament concept that we see all the way back from the time of Abraham. Again, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. Okay, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. So remember, this is the account of Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then he asked God for an object lesson. How do I know that I'm going to receive these promises? After all, Eliezer is the only seed that I have of this promise, and he's not a natural descendant. So God gives him this object lesson. And notice what God says to Abram. Genesis 15, 13 says, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants, there is the term seed, your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So let's stop there. Where is that? Egypt, Egypt right? Exactly. So that's in Egypt. So verse 14, he says, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. 
As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they, meaning the believers that are Israel, they will return here. Now listen to this reasoning. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Literally, it's not yet filled to the full. So there was a full measure of iniquity that the Amorite was going to complete. And once they did, God can't stand no more. And he would intervene in judgment. Okay? Now, turn your Bibles ahead to the New Testament. I want you to see that this is indeed uh, a concept, again, that has positive and negative connotations to it. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 1.24. This is a passage that Bob had preached and taught us. He taught us this very concept when he was teaching in Colossians 1.24. Someday we're going to put it all together and maybe have a big... Whole, I think he'll do that in Acts 7, but we'd like to show you all the passages that show this idea of filling up. But for the sake of time, we'll just look at a couple here. Colossians 1.24. Paul writes this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, of course, the Catholic Church may take that and say, well, look, there's something lacking in what Christ did. We have to add somehow to the atonement of Christ. But as Bob showed, out, showed us in his sermon, that's not at all what Colossians 1.24 is saying. But instead, it gets to this concept that there's a filling up. There's a full measure of suffering that God's people who are united to Messiah are allotted for. And what Paul was saying is that he took upon himself a large chunk of that suffering that was allotted for, for God's people. That's what he's saying there. He's not saying that there's something deficient in Christ's atonement. And so this idea of filling up is very prevalent throughout the Bible. So conceptually, let me bring you back here. Let me just get it back to Revelation now. Here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider where we are now living. Right now, as we are talking in this room, you and I are somewhere living prior to the breaking forth of the 70th week. Now, how close to, a, to the 70th week are we? We don't know. I believe the 70th week, its inception is the rapture of the church, and the rapture is an imminent proposition. We don't know when it's going to occur. So we're living somewhere in here. And so in a sense, what's happened is now you and I are suffering the afflictions that this world can give. But there's going to be a reversal where God can't stand anymore. And as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, I will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Okay, so what happens is you and I are raptured. And then as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, we're no longer going to undergo affliction. Why? We're resurrected. We're with the Lord. We go to be with him. But now the affliction comes upon the whole world. Is everyone with me? Well, this last seven years, now the affliction is poured out upon the whole world. But God is so gracious and so merciful that he doesn't just say, that's it. Nobody's going to be saved during this time period. Instead, he even brings people to salvation during this last seven years. And then you have another filling up. You have another, it, during the seven years, a bunch of believers who are going to come to faith, but more and more of them are going to be martyred. More and more and more is the time period. And that fills up. And finally, God can't stand no more. And he returns with his saints from heaven, sets up his kingdom. And from then on, now you're in the millennial kingdom. The people of God are what? They're forever secure. In fact, Jerusalem, the millennial kingdom, is now depicted as a city that has no walls. Why? Because they don't need them. And peace reigns from sea to sea and God's justice will reign the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. They'll beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and they won't learn war anymore. And so that's what God is going to do about it. But for now, what we're looking at is the last hurrah of the filling up of evil that God will tolerate, and that's what we're looking at. So now, as we get to the midpoint, what God is doing is he's beginning to act upon the prayers of the saints that are martyred from the very beginning of the 70th week right here. And so what's going to, and now, in fact, turn your Bibles one last time to that Matthew 24. I want to show you, because remember, we're talking about the great tribulation, right? And I want to show you one more time, this time period is the worst time period ever. But if God didn't act, no flesh would survive. But notice what he says, who this, he says, for the sake of the elect, that time period will be cut short. Let's read that together. Matthew 24, we'll read verses 20 through 22. 
Okay, Matthew 24, 20 through 22. Jesus says, but pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. How many here have trouble getting the needs met, whether it be gas or groceries, etc., if you go out on a Sabbath, which would be a Saturday? Anybody have any trouble like that? You do in Israel, okay? I'm just pointing out that this is an Israel-centric passage. It applies to all of us because all of us should look at the promises of God fulfilling are fulfilling his promises to Israel and say, well, wow, that's wonderful because that's our promises too. But it's specifically Israel-centric. He says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. When it says nor ever will, and it's the worst time period, this is the worst ever, and you can't have the worstest. And we're reading about the worst in Revelation, so we know it's the same time period. Verse 22, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So what I want you to see then is the prayers that were ushered by the martyrs in the first half are now starting to be answered in the last half of the tribulation so that this time period is cut short. Otherwise, no flesh would survive. But for the sake of the elect, there's only so much God will tolerate. And he's going to intervene once and for all. And so that's beginning now in the trumpet judgments. That's what we're looking at. So here's some things to consider, and I think this relates to our prayer life. And here's what I want you to consider with our prayer and God's timing. In the trumpet judgments, again, we should see God's timing at work. He is beginning to intensify here the judgment upon the unregenerate to cut short the misery. But God here is answering the prayers of the saints on his timetable, isn't he? So again, when you pray... God gives three possible answers. He says yes, immediately, no, immediately, or wait. Yes, but wait, right? And it's the yes, but wait that we don't like. And I want to show you a passage where we're called to be persistent in prayer. And I think Revelation is a book that teaches us to be persistent in prayer. Even though we don't get the answer that we want immediately, what we learn from this is that, yes, we're called to be people on our knees because God does work on behalf of his people. And I want you to see a passage that's connected to eschatology. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning to Luke, 1, excuse me, Luke 18, verses 1 through 7, what's very interesting about this passage is it's connected, obviously, to Luke 17, which is all about this time period. Remember in Luke 17, 26, Jesus refers to the days of the Son of Man. Matthew has the same quote, except he uses the parousia of the Son of Man. That's the 70th week of Daniel. So what's interesting is Jesus is talking about eschatology. He's talking about the wearing down of the saints in the coming kingdom in the 70th week, and that's in the end of chapter 17, and immediately he talks about the need for persistence in prayer. In Luke 18, notice what it says. Luke 18, 1 through 7, he says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Let's just stop there. Do you think it would have been easy for those, or let me say it this way, it should be future. Do you think it will be easy for those who are living during Daniel's 70th week, who have just come to faith and they see the things that they do, to lose heart? Sure it will. You know, it's not easy for us because we see right now the wicked prosper and we see those who do good hurt for it. We see it in politics. We see it in our culture, our society. Look who gets a lot of money. It's not those who are teaching the gospel or who are going out feeding the poor or whomever. It's a reversal, isn't it? it there's a reversal. You are working hard as a taxpayer and doing your due diligence you're being mistreated by those who are ungodly often. And we see that. And so often it's tempting to lose heart. So here's the answer. Jesus says, do not lose heart. Verse 2, he says, saying in a certain city. So here he's going to give an example. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, 
Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Dear ones, what Jesus is saying is she was persistent. And now he's going to use a lesser to greater. This wicked ruler is obviously much less than God. And if he is going to act on perhaps on per, on, on behalf, that's what I wanted to say, on behalf of a persistent person, how much more will a great and good God work on behalf of his elect, his people? That's the idea. Okay? So that's what he says in verse 6. It says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cried to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? And what's the answer? No. Now, from our perspective, it seems like, well, this is going on for quite a while. It's been 2,000 years since Christ ascended into the heavens. But we're to be persistent in prayer because God is faithful to his promises. Look at Ephesians 6.18. We're called to pray for the perseverance of the saints. Why should we pray for the perseverance of the saints? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to be persistent in prayer in the means of grace, but we're called to do those things. So one of the things I think we should learn from the book of Revelation is that God does indeed answer prayer, but it's on his timetable. He has it all ordained. He's heard your cries. He will answer them, and he will redeem you. He will protect you. You are his people. And you have on the authority of Scripture. And by the way, that's how he's always acted in history. That's what we're seeing. Okay? All right, now, let's keep moving. We're going to come now to verses 5 through 7, where we're going to see now the breaking of the first uh, trumpet, or the breaking out of the first trumpet. Revelation 8, 5 through 7, it says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there, there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So it doesn't sound too good for those who dwell on the earth, does it? So notice, first of all, we have this angel. He takes the censer, and it's filled with fire. So it it comes right from where? The altar. So this comes from God. And what does he do? It says that he threw it down to the earth. Does everyone see that? So he takes this, and so this is the idea that God's wrath is being thrown upon the earth. Now, what's very interesting is this is probably an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. Turn your Bibles back there real quick. I want you to see this connection. This is a connection that I think is important for understanding the book of Revelation. Ezekiel 10, 2. In Ezekiel chapter 10, remember the context there? Is Yahweh couldn't take it anymore? He couldn't stand no more with Israel and Judah's idolatry. And so he departs the temple. So what's very interesting is Jesus does the same thing when he can't stand the idolatry of Israel anymore. In Matthew 23, he also departs the temple, doesn't he? He says, I leave to your house desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Well, where does Jesus go after he leaves the temple? He goes to the Mount of Olives, doesn't he? In Ezekiel 11, where does God go after he leaves the temple? He goes to the Mount of Olives, and that's where he ascends. Where does Jesus ascend from? The Mount of Olives. So Jesus is Yahweh, isn't he? Okay, now notice in Ezekiel 10 too, here's the connection I want you to see. Again, God is angry with the sin of Israel. It says in Ezekiel 10 too, and he spoke to the man clothed in linen. This is an angel and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Okay, and then it says, And he entered in my sight. Now notice, here's an angel, and he's also taking, just as we have here in Revelation, he's taking coal from the altar. So the wrath here is coming right from God. But notice in Ezekiel 10 too, where does he dispense the wrath? Where is it thrown upon? Is it upon the whole earth? It's upon the city. Well, which city? Jerusalem, right? Well, now we see the same thing happening. 
But where is it being thrown, these coals? Is it upon Jerusalem? No, it's upon the whole earth. And so there's the idea of reversal. The judgment of God begins with his own people. But when you get to the 70th week of Daniel, there's a reversal. Those who afflict you, I will afflict. And so now the wrath isn't being poured upon Jerusalem, per se. It's being poured out upon the whole world. Okay, so that's what you want to see. So time and time again, the methods that God uses, like in Isaiah chapter 10, he uses the nations as instruments of his wrath against his own people. Well, when you get to the book of Revelation, he uses the same instruments, but against all people of the planet. So again, that's why in the Old Testament, when you have these near-term judgments, they're foreshadowings of the ultimate day of the Lord. And so that's the connection I want you to see. You'll see it time and time and time again. Okay? Now, let's keep going here for the sake of time. Notice what's in highlighted red here. It, says, it talks about peals of thunders and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is storm theophany. The storm theophany that happened when the people of God met him at Sinai, you see the same thing happening here. And I'm going to show you how this relates to this last exodus. Okay, so what's interesting with the storm theophany, remember, we saw the same thing in Revelation 4 or 5. So we saw the lightning and the, the earthquakes, etc. We heard the thunder right from the throne room of God. Well, then every time you get to the seventh, whether it be the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or the seventh bowl, you have the same storm theophany. That's what we have going on here. Why is that important? Because it shows you that all of the judgments, whether they be the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, it all comes from the throne of God. So no one can say, well, I think the seals, that's just the wrath of man, and everything else is the wrath of God. No, it's all the wrath of God. It all proceeds from the throne. That's the idea that I want you to see. Now, notice down here in verse 7, we have now the first trumpet. Okay, the first trumpet is being blown. So no longer now are we in the seventh seal. The seventh seal is opening up to the trumpets. And the first trumpet is sounded. And notice what happens. There's hail and fire mixed with blood. Again, this is a reference back to the book of Exodus where God poured out his judgments upon Egypt. Okay, so what we have going on in the 70th week of Daniel is the last Exodus. There's a people who cry out. God hears he brings them through the wilderness to the promised land again. That's what you see happening. I'll show you that in just a moment. But the final thing I want to point out here is notice it says a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all of the grass was burned up. So no more grass. If you're concerned about grass, one of those guys that's always weeding and feeding, etc., don't worry about it. God's going to burn it all up. <laughs> okay? I like grass too, by the way. But I want you to see is, what is this an answer to? Turn your Bibles back to Revelation 7, 3. Because remember, in Revelation 7, the question that was asked was, who can stand under God's wrath? And we found that it was the 144,000. Those are the people on earth. And it was the great multitude in heaven. In other words, the people of God, wherever they are. They're the ones who can stand. But one of the concerns for the people who are believers that are still on the earth is that they had to be sealed until before this wrath came. And here's why. Revelation 7, 3, here's what the angel said. He says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. Well, lo and behold, right here, we have the trees, the earth, and the grass mentioned again. Right? It's the same thing. So now we see that, yes, because they're safe, they've been sealed, now God can continue his intensification of wrath. That's what I want you to see. That's the connection that John intends you to see. Okay? All right, now, let's, I can move a little bit more quickly now. I want to show you this idea of exoduses. And I want you to think of this concept that throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there are a series of exoduses. And when we're in the 70th week of Daniel, which is what Revelation is all about, if you think of that as the last exodus, it'll help make the Bible come alive. So here's what I would want you to consider. Noah and his family went on an exodus. Okay, they went on an exodus because they were living in the old world. They cried out. God answered. He deluges the world and he brings them to a new world. 
They're cut off from the old world forevermore. If they wanted to go back to the old world, they could not. They were cut off through the waters. And those waters should have killed them, but they lived. Why? Because God is merciful and gracious. Now, Abraham, Abraham goes on an exodus. He leaves the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, and he goes where? To the promised land. Talk about Israel. Israel goes on the exodus, right? And they also go through a deluge of water. So even if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they couldn't because the waters cut them off. And yes, they should have died, but instead God cuts off their enemies and kills them and they live. Fast forward to Jesus' time. In Jesus' life, we see a recapitulation of Israel. Jesus is baptized in Matthew, right? What happens after his baptism? Where does he go? He goes into the wilderness. Where did Israel go? They went into the wilderness for 40 years. They failed miserably. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds because he is true Israel. He is the son par excellence, the son that God never had in Israel. And he lives the perfect life that none of us could. So then by the time you get to Matthew 7, he's giving law. It's like the, on the Mount of, um, the Sermon on the Mount. It's like Mount Sinai. You have heard it said, now I say to you. Okay, so you have a recapitulation in a sense. And so all who will trust in Jesus, you're living in the wilderness now, but you're heading towards the promised land. You're on an exodus. Well, the final exodus that occurs then is in the 70th week of Daniel. That's what we're reading about. It's the final exodus. God is so merciful and gracious that those who cry out, he'll answer and he'll save. And so I want you to see again, Exodus 2.23, for the sake of time, just notice where it says here that the people cried out. The people of Israel, it says they cried out. Well, what did we read in Revelation 6, 9 through 10? When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They cried out. And so God is going to answer. Notice the other connections. In Exodus 19.16, you have this thunder and this lightning. Well, lo and behold, you have that every time you have it in the throne room. Revelation 4, 5, you have also at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, the same thing. Notice here you have also the blast of a trumpet. I think that's significant. We're in the trumpet judgments. Notice Revelation 4, 5, here's the throne room. Out of, from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Those are the spirits of God. Okay, so again, you have this connection. There's thunder and lightning. Now you have this hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. The people are at Sinai. They're at Exodus 19. Does everyone see that? So in Exodus 19, the people of God are meeting him at Mount Sinai. And sure enough, in Revelation 8, 7, it says the first sounded, that's the first trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And the throw down to earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. God had predicted time and time again in the prophets, that the great judgments that he had poured out upon Egypt, he would do again. And he would do again in the last days. In fact, turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verse 30. I want you to see that, yes, God had predicted that these judgments that he did during the Exodus, that he would perform again. Uh, Joel 2, verse, I'm sorry, Joel 2, 30. Notice he says, I will display wonders in the sky. This is associated with the day of the Lord. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. In the book of Amos, chapter 4, verse 10, you can just jot it down. God says that he would take, again, the manner of judgments that he'd poured upon Egypt and he would pour them again upon his people. So the original Exodus forms a pattern, a pattern of judgment that we see for the last time in the book of Revelation. That's what I want you to see. And so it really is the final Exodus. 
And here's what I want you to consider for your own life. Let's think about our own baptism. Anytime you see this Exodus motif, you should be thinking of baptism. Because baptism means that there's no going back. You're identified with the Lord. You're with him, and there's no going back to the old world. I think that that's a primary image. Notice what Peter said. Here's baptism and how it relates. He talks about those who were once disobedient, these fallen angels, 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. He says, They were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, does everyone see the term where it says corresponding to that? The term in the Greek is anti-tupon. It literally has to do with a pattern. That's what he's talking about. So there's a pattern, and the pattern was the floodwaters. And so there's a pattern or relationship between the floodwaters and baptism. And so here's the idea. Noah and his family, they should have died. But they were brought through the deluge of the water alive and they were brought to a new world. And so you see, when you are united to Jesus Christ, you died with him, and you deserve death, just as Noah did, just as the Israelites, but yet because you're with Christ, yet you live. And so you're going to the promised land, and because you've gone through the deluge, the symbol is there's no going back. Could Noah go back? Could Noah go back to the old world, or was it forever different? It's forever different. Could Israel go back? They wanted to, but they couldn't, and neither can you. And so the people in the 70th week of Daniel, they have the same thing. One last chance, God is going to be faithful to bring people to belief in his son, and there's no going back. They're on the final exodus. And so, dear ones, when you are baptized, I want you to consider this idea of what it means. It means that there's no going back. That's what it means. Think about Israel. Paul says, oh, by the way, eight persons, I forgot to put that up there. Yeah, eight persons were brought safely through the water. That's it. They should have died, but yet they lived. Okay, listen to what Paul says of the Israelites. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. What Paul is saying is they had baptism. They have baptism just as you have baptism. But did it avail them anything? Well, no, the majority died in the wilderness. So, yes, we have baptism, but baptism is a symbol. It doesn't save you. So what it should remind us of, though, is that there's no going back, that we belong to Christ, that we're dead with him, and so we're dead to the old world. And that's exactly Paul's point when we get to Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Some have thought that. What's the difference? If I'm saved by grace alone, can I go on sinning? Well, Paul answers, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? You're dead. You're dead to the old world. You're dead to those old sins. You're dead to Egypt. That's the idea. Therefore, he says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, turn your Bibles. I want you to see the last passage, Revelation 6, 5. Revelations, or excuse me, not Revelation 6, Romans 6, 5. I want you to see the very verse that comes after this. I couldn't put it all on the screen. Romans 6, 5, he says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we shall all be in the likeness of his resurrection. We should have all died like Noah. We should have all died like Israel in the floodwaters or the waters of the Red Sea. But instead, we live. And so the final time in the book of Revelation, in the 70th week of Daniel, God extends that offer to even more people. That is, to the elect that come to faith in him during that time period. And they also have to pray, they also have to persevere, and they also have to realize that there's no going back. 
So that's what the book of Revelation should encourage us to do. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. He wins. And that's what the wrath of God is all about in the seal, the trumpet, and also the bold judgments. The reason you and I can persevere to the promised land and not live for Egypt is because God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He will destroy your enemy. Your prayers aren't going to go unanswered. Even if he says, wait now, it's not indefinite, an indefinite time period that you have to wait. It's only for a little while. I think that that's what we can conclude here from the seventh seal in the beginning of the first trumpet judgment. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, that you are bringing us to the promised land. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters here that they would persevere, that they wouldn't see the injustices of this world and this life as evidence that you have not heard their cries, that you don't care for their needs. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would persevere in prayer, that they would realize that there's no going back, that there's a new world coming, and that this new world begins when your Messiah reigns. There'll be no more sin, no more death, no more heartache. The former things will be removed, and behold, you bring new things. So I pray, Lord, that we would focus on that day, enable my brothers, to per- brothers and sisters here to persevere until that day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks, you guys.